may be seated. I love that, that song we just sang. That was great. The picture of Lazarus coming out of the grave and Jesus calling him by name. It made me think of myself as a teenager. No church background. Really didn't know anything about Jesus. Really didn't know the gospel at all. When there I was visiting my grandma who lived in a rural setting in a back road in a small town. Visiting her with all of my cousins. I'm standing on the front lawn when up walks a door-to-door evangelist. Remember those? I just happen to be the cousin that's closest to the road, so I'm the one that engages in the conversation. Again, no church background. There I was, probably 13 or 14 years old, and I'm hearing the gospel for the very first time. And there, it's awkward because my whole family, like 30 of them, are standing by the house like, oh, let's see how this goes. He begins to share the gospel with me, and he, he gets done and he prays for me. And I remember walking back to the house and I remember my thoughts so clearly. I said, if this is true, I want this. I'm walking back to the house. I see my sister who was a couple years older than me and she is just weeping. Again, I, I didn't know she was a Christian. Uh, I come to find out she's weeping because she had come to know Jesus. None of us knew it. She had been praying for me to come to know Christ. So in her mind, God had answered her prayer and sending the guy to come to the grandma's house on the old dirt road in the middle of nowhere town to share Jesus with me. And that started my journey when I got back home started going to church with her. I started exploring the truths of Christianity, figuring out, is this true? Is this right? And that's how Jesus called my name and brought me back to life. And that's probably a story that, we all have stories like that, right? Those moments where Jesus called us by name. Which leads us to the unplanned intro that that song just provoked in me. (laughs) But it's good for us to remember our stories. Because when we get to the book of James, what James is talking about is how we live out our faith. But we live out our faith because first of all, Jesus pursued us and called us by name. We came to know him, so now it's appropriate for us to learn how to live for him, for us to know how to follow him, for us to understand his word. Right, because we love him and we want to follow him. And we get to James chapter three. And last week, if you remember, he was talking about our words. The need for us to control our tongues. So it should be no surprise as we move forward in the passage, he moves from talking about words to talking about wisdom. Nothing reveals our need for wisdom like our uh, uncontrolled tongues. But there's probably nobody in the room today who would say, you know what? I don't really need God's wisdom. I'm good. No, I think most of us are desperate for it. We're desperate for it in our parenting. We're desperate for it in our careers. We're desperate for it in our families, in our relationships, in all these decisions we have to make. We have all these roads in front of us and they all look good. Sometimes they all look bad and we think, I need God's wisdom. And so we get to James chapter three and what he does is he paints a picture of two different types of wisdom. 
He said, you don't just need wisdom. You need a specific kind of wisdom. And it reminds me of the beginning of that famous novel, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Some of the most famous words ever written, he says, it was the best of times. It was the? It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief and the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven and we were all going the other way. What Dickens is painting for us is a dichotomy. He's saying, hey, um, in London and Paris in the late 1700s, you could be living in one city, one place, and experience it in two totally different ways. It could have been the best of times for you, or it could have been the worst of times. Same time, same place. And James is telling us his own tale of two cities. He says that in the world, there are two ways for us to go. There is the realm of true wisdom, and there is the realm of false wisdom. They exist at the same time, in the same place, and even in the same people. There are two ways for you to see the world, two different ways for you to navigate your circumstances. And James wants to tell us, listen, you have to be able to identify the true wisdom and follow it. And you have to be able to identify the false wisdom and avoid it. This is what he says. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly spiritual, demonic, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there James tells us two wisdoms, a true wisdom and a false wisdom. And as we dive into this, we need to remember who James is talking to. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers on how to apply their faith, which sometimes we read this, we might think, well, we're the church. We're Jesus' people. We should be those who have the true wisdom. It is those out there They have the false wisdom. True wisdom in here, false wisdom out there. But James says it's not so simple. Even within the church, among believers, we will be tempted to follow a different type of wisdom rather than God's wisdom. So this afternoon, I just want to ask three three questions that this text answers. First, we have to identify what is true wisdom. Then we have to identify what is false wisdom, and then we need to see how we can grow in true wisdom. So the first question, what is true wisdom? James answered this question in a way that might be surprising to us. It certainly was countercultural in the first century. Verse 13, he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. One of the things my kids hate about math class 
is that they have to show their work, right? They might get the correct answer, yet they get marked down because they failed to show their work, and it frustrates them to no end. I got it right. Why are you deducting points? But the teachers know. Yeah, you may be smart. You may be able to get the right answer and have the knowledge to to spit out the correct number, but you have to learn the process because the problems are going to get harder. The problems are going to get more complicated, and if you don't know the process, you're not going to be able to eventually spit out the answer. And this is essentially what James is saying about wisdom. Wisdom is not about you being able to spit out knowledge, to spit out the answer. Wisdom is not about having a clever thing to say. It's not about being able to make a two-minute TikTok video explaining the mysteries of the universe. Right? It's not about what's in your head. Alexa can spit out the answer. Google can spit out the answer. Chat GPT. Come on. Spits out an answer better than any of us could give. In our own voice, you know, how we want it spit out, right? But what James is telling us about wisdom is, hey, listen, it's not about the knowledge you have. Wisdom is about the ability to apply the knowledge in a particular circumstances appropriately. And those are, that's very different. Right? When you're in a moment of crisis, you don't go to your smartest friend. You don't. You don't in a moment of crisis, you don't ask chat GPT. No, you want to go, go to someone who's lived it. You want to go to someone who's able to take the, um, the wisdom of God and give you counsel for your particular circumstance. Eugene Peterson says it this way. Wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. Right, not about the answer, like the box that you check, but the process for how you get there. And James, in this verse, he says, when you look at a wise person, there are two characteristics you have to look for. There are two characteristics of wise people in the scripture. Verse 13 tells us that we got to show our work in the meekness of wisdom. A wise person's life is meek. And remember, in, Greco-Roman, in the Greco-Roman world, meekness was not considered a virtue. Right? Humility and meekness was a weakness in the first century. It wasn't until Jesus came on the scene and turned the paradigm upside down to where today we, we view humility as a positive. The first century, they'd be like, you are weak. Jesus is the one who said, no, I am, we, you guys said it earlier, gentle, lowly of heart. I'm meek. I'm humble. I'm lowly. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. Meekness is not weakness, it is strength under control. In fact, the same word here for meekness was used of tame horses. Horses who, the the wild horse is out showing its power, running around crazy, not meek. But when you had the, the, the horse who was able to control his strength and use it for a good purpose, that was meek. 
It's not false humility. Oh, please, stop it. Stop it. Okay, stop, stop it. Seriously, just stop it. And it's not thinking badly of yourself. Like, you know, I'm not worth anything. I'm garbage. I'm terrible. No one likes me. No one loves me. That's not, that's not meekness or humility either. Meekness is having strength and having power, but having it under control, directing it at the right aim, the right end. Meekness is not cowardice. It is not passivity. It is a posture before God where we say, I am trusting God, so I am set free from anxious self-promotion. Isn't that good news? Self-promotion is exhausting. Living our lives in such a way to prove to everyone else that I am valuable and I am worthwhile and you should look at me and you should see me and you should like me and you should love me leads to exhaustion. But when we look up and we say, no, actually, I trust a God who is bigger than that, so I don't need your approval. I don't need your applause because I have the applause of the God of heaven and he loves me. That changes the paradigm. We have our strength and we have that power from God and all of a sudden we can aim it not towards self-promotion but aim it towards the good of others and the glory of God. That is meekness. Jesus was meek. Jesus was meek. He had all the power in the universe yet he deployed it perfectly. He aimed it in the right direction for the glory of God and the good of others. Wisdom is meek. Strength under control. Second, we see that a wise person's life is beautiful. Verse 13, again, he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works. Good conduct. We, we read that in the English, and we kind of, at least the way I read it, I, I immediately think goody two-shoe. Like someone who is morally upright. Like, hey, by your good conduct, you, you know, marking all the, your eyes and crossing all your T's and checking all the boxes, you're morally upright. And of course, that's good. But that's not what James is talking about. This word actually might be translated better as beautiful. He's talking about having a beautiful way of life, an attractiveness that doesn't come from your appearance or your success, but comes from the goodness of heart. In fact, it's it's the same Greek word. uh, When you look at the Greek of calligraphy, it literally means good writing. Good, or excuse me, beautiful writing. Same word, beautiful writing. What James is saying here is a wise person has beautiful living. Beautiful living, a beautiful way of life. And James is saying this is the life that all of us actually long for, the life that we desire. It's perfect submission to God taking all of our our resources, our gifts, and our schedules, and just putting them before the master artist and letting him shape and mold us into something beautiful. And you say, okay, that sounds pretty good, but what does that look like? Like, what does a beautiful life look like? Verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
One thing that we notice about all of these attributes of the beautiful life is that they relate to how we relate to other people. And James will go on in verse 18, we're gonna talk about it later, he's gonna talk about peace. There's something about the wise life, when you cut it open, there is relational wholeness that leads to peace. It says peaceable. You're not quarrelsome. Gentle, not abrasive. Open to reason, not closed to hearing someone else's perspective. Impartial, not playing favorites. Sincere, not putting a mask on for others. And James says, if you want to cut open a wise person, what you're going to see is someone living with meekness, and you're going to see someone living the beautiful relational life with God and others. He's going to say, hey, wisdom may not be easy to define, but you can see it in the life of someone. Wisdom has to be lived, James tells us. And when we see wisdom, what it's supposed to do is we think, oh, I recognize this. This, is, this echoes, this resonates in my heart. This is just like Jesus. This is what Jesus would do. This is what Jesus would say. This reminds me of what I read in the Gospels of Jesus' life, and he is the perfect picture of wisdom. Second, we need to learn to recognize what is false wisdom. Verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You see, what what James is saying is, even within the church, even within Christians, we will have the temptation to follow a different type of wisdom. So you have to recognize it. And he says, this looks like two things. Here are the, the, the markers of the false wisdom when you begin to live it. First, it looks like bitter jealousy. Jealousy says, I am craving what God has given to others. Of course, we know God has called us to be content, which says, I am enjoying what God has given to me. But you... You, you know you're going down the path of false wisdom when you begin to pine and crave after what God has given to somebody else. And we all have been there. Many of us are probably there at the moment in the age of social media. This is so easy. And we think, God, they have it good. Look at their job. Look at their family. Look at their money. Look at their apartment. Look at their appearance. God, if you had given me their set of circumstances, I would be good. I don't understand why you have given me these lousy circumstances. This job, this relationship, this location, this bank account. Why, God? And all of a sudden, what we've done is we've moved our eyes away from Jesus, the source of true wisdom, and we've begun to have a laser focus on ourselves. 
we miss out what God is doing in and through us because our eyes are on someone else's paper. And we think, God, why did you put me in these circumstances? But instead of craving for what someone else might have, what if we with humility took a step back and said, okay, God, I don't understand fully why I'm here. I don't understand fully why this is happening right now in my life, but with humility and with open hands, I am available, God. What are you trying to do in me? God, what are you trying to do through me? God, what are you trying to teach me? God, here I am. I may not love this. I may not like this, but God, I want to live in this for the glory of God, fully believing that you have put me here for a good purpose. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. I'm going to read that again. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You see, this type of faith will weed jealousy out of our hearts and breed contentment. Second, James tells us that false wisdom looks like selfish ambition. So we know that we're following the path of false wisdom when we are running hard after selfish ambition. And unfortunately, almost all of us know exactly what this looks like. Many of us have lived this life. It is my energy, my effort, my resources directed towards my reputation, my influence, my bank account, or my fame. We live for the sake of my name being great. In these moments of selfish ambition, if we were honest, I don't think we would ever say it, but under the surface, our prayer is more like, my kingdom come, my will be done. Yeah, and we might be in church being like, thy kingdom come. Jesus, 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 we love you, Jesus. And then we show up at work on Monday, we think, my kingdom come, my will be done. I gotta get mine before this guy gets mine, and I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go. Selfish ambition does not consider others, but it often, often tramples over people to get what we want. If you're in the way of my agenda, I'm sorry, but I gotta run you over. Coworkers get used. How can they help me get where I want to go? Families often get neglected. I'm really sorry. I promise I'm going to make this up to you as soon as I get this next thing. Friendships get consumed. What have you done for me lately? And we often don't even notice that selfish ambition has crept into our story and into our lives until we actually get what we were pursuing, right? We're pursuing selfish ambition and all of a sudden we get that thing that we thought we needed to make us happy and we realize very quickly it doesn't. And then we take a step back and we're like, God, what have I done? I've gotten to where I always wanted to be and it did not do it for me. So God, either I'm following the wrong wisdom or maybe there's another thing out there and I'm just gonna keep going down this path until I get that thing, which we all know is a lie. 
leadership expert Stephen Covey once said, it's incredibly easy to get caught up in an activity trap, in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success, only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. This is a great picture of selfish ambition. You climbed the ladder, you got to the top, and you realize this is not where I want to be. This is lonely. This is miserable. This does not make me happy. And you're like, you look back down the ladder and you realize all the people you trampled to get the thing that you thought would make you happy. And where James is like, listen, can we just stop now? Before you start craving after everybody else's stuff, can we stop now before you spend all of your time and all of your resources climbing the wrong ladder? And can we, instead of pursuing worldly wisdom, can we pursue the wisdom of God? And here's what's interesting. In the church, we often think, okay, I just need to get rid of my ambition. Ambition must be wrong. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Ambition is not wrong. Ambition needs to be redirected, right? The selfish ambition has the ambition pointed at you, me. Godly ambition has the goal directed at Jesus, his kingdom and his glory. So God's like, your ambition, you're ambitious, great. You're great. I'm so glad you're ambition, Let, ambitious. Let's use that for the glory of Jesus. And guess what? When you climb to the top of that ladder and you see Jesus face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, guess what? That's not gonna leave you disappointed. You will enter into the fullness of joy forever. The third question we have to answer in this text is how do we grow in true wisdom? Because we say, okay, James, I, I hear you. True wisdom, false wisdom. Wisdom from above, wisdom from the earth, unspiritual, demonic, got it. I wanna go with the true wisdom, thank you very much. How do I do that? How do I grow? Verse 18, he concludes this passage by saying, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I think in this passage, we have two questions that help us get at the heart of how to get true wisdom. James is saying here, the fruit of heavenly wisdom is a life of peace. So when you're walking the path of wisdom, it's going to end in peace. But he doesn't mean peace in the way that we typically mean it. We, when we say peace, we typically mean an um, absence of conflict and tension. Peace. I just want an absence of conflict and tension. Please, God. My life feels filled with conflict and tension. But the biblical word for peace is actually much more robust than that. It's not just about the absence of conflict. It is about the presence of flourishing in all areas of your life. It is much bigger than just not having annoying people annoy you or not having a parking spot when you need one or not having that person who always is fighting with you fighting with you. 
No, James's picture of peace is you thriving and flourishing in all areas of your life. You living in the fullness of life that Jesus died to give you. He says this is the fruit that comes from sowing in peace. Sowing. Um, like farming, not needle and thread. Sowing. What are you sowing? The metaphor is a farming metaphor, which we all understand. Peace is like a seed sown in the ground today that we harvest later. The question is, what are we sowing today? One of the most difficult concepts in the scriptures, not difficult to understand because it's quite easy, but difficult to, to live, is that we, sow, we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. I wish it wasn't so. I wish I could just do what I want to do, and boom, out pops wisdom and peace. But we reap what we sow. Meaning that what we're investing our time and our energy and our resources in today is what we're going to harvest tomorrow. What are you sowing? What is getting your attention? Is it worldly wisdom or is it the wisdom from above? If we sow in jealousy and selfish ambition, we, we can't be surprised when we reap chaos. But if we make little deposits of meekness and service, hearing God's word, obeying God's voice, it's a daily sowing, we should expect a harvest of peace, a harvest of righteousness, James says. So what are you sowing? Second, what are you trusting? Remember how James describes true wisdom. He says, true wisdom is wisdom from above. Simply, he means it's from God. God is the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. God is the source of wisdom. There is a wisdom in the universe, a sovereign God who reigns and rules all things. And philosophers for thousands of years have tried to ascend the heavens to gain wisdom to bring it down. How can we get the wisdom of the gods and bring it down? How can we get the wisdom of the heavens and bring it to earth? But the staggering truth of Christianity is that wisdom came to us. This is the good news of the gospel. We actually don't get wisdom with our nose in a book. We get wisdom in relationship with a person who is wisdom, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived perfect wisdom, God in the flesh. We could never reach to God. We weren't smart enough to bring down the wisdom of the heavens, so wisdom personified in Jesus Christ came down to us, and he lived the life that we should have lived with perfect wisdom. He died the death that we deserved on the cross. He rose from the dead in power. And when he did that, he invited us into a relationship. And when we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, perfect wisdom, we begin to walk in wisdom. 
And it's not like a light switch where it's like, okay, I prayed a prayer, I'm a follower of Jesus now, like boom, I'm wise. No, 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 as we get to know Christ and we grow in Christ, who is wisdom, we become more and more like him and walking in wisdom. Remember how the Gospel of John begins. John the Apostle writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We might even say the wisdom came and walked the earth with us. He lived, he died, he rose, and now he offers us that wisdom. So the question for us today when we say, okay, I need wisdom, yeah, sign me up, I, I need wisdom. The questions we have to ask ourselves, and sometimes they're hard questions, is if we want wisdom, we have to ask, what are we sowing today? What are we investing in? Is it the way of wisdom with meekness? Or is it the way of the world, selfish ambition and jealousy? We have to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in? Do we really believe that wisdom came down in the person of Jesus Christ, or are we still relying on ourselves to figure it out? And thirdly, just very quickly, maybe you're in here and you're hearing me talk about a relationship with God, and you're like, I just don't, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's me. I heard you even tell your story at the beginning, and I'm like, yeah, good for you, but I'm not actually sure how to have that type of relationship with the God of the universe. The scriptures tell us, that Christ lived and died, he rose for us, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Meaning, when we come to him with faith and dependence, saying, here I am. God, I'm turning from my way, and I'm going with your way. It's a great place to start. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of wisdom, and we are your people, and we say together, we need your wisdom. We need your help. We need your guidance. God, I pray for every person in this room and whatever circumstances in their head right now where they need wisdom. God, I pray that they would walk with you, the Lord of wisdom, wisdom personified, and they would have everything that they need. God, that you would direct them, that you would guide them, that you would supply them with every resource that they need. God, I pray that you would help us to walk in your wisdom and not the wisdom of the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.